yeah, that's a way, that's a tactic. But people, like the research shows that people don't really respond well from a life overhaul. Like that's a temporary solution. That's the keto diet. That's like, that's stuff that doesn't really stick. The, the joke that I kind of always play in my head of the before and after photo is like, okay, where's the actual after photo? Like, <laughs> like where's the now photo? Like this was like what happened in 90 days. What happened in the two years after that? Usually what it took in order to create that change in 90 days is not something sustainable. What we want to create with our clients is something that, that lasts forever. So really those moments of achievement and of accomplishment, of celebration, they happen all the time. But then you also have just as many days where you feel like you're not getting anywhere. And those have to happen. Like those, those slip ups have to happen. So it's, um, and, and then, you know, you pick yourself up, you work on them and you keep going. Welcome to the 54th episode of Tokyo Alumni Podcast. Today, our guest graduated ASIJ in 2007, originally from the USA, uh, but he was raised at international schools around the world, born in Northampton, Massachusetts, lived in Tanzania, North Carolina, Brazil, and Costa Rica before moving to Tokyo in 2003, when his dad, Tim Carr, became the headmaster, a position he held until moving to Jakarta in 2010 to take over the headship at Jakarta Intercultural School. He went on to study kinesiology at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. While at university, he worked for Red Bull, led the UBC Surf Club, and worked as a student athletic trainer for the UBC rugby team, and met his to-be wife, Laura. After graduation, he moved to Atlanta and worked at the Atlanta International School before moving back to Vancouver and starting work with Innovative Fitness as a professional training coach. In the six years at IF, he moved up the ranks from coach to events manager to sales manager to corporate sales to studio manager before opening his own franchise in January of 2018. He now has 12 staff and about 120 clients. He is passionate about leadership, empowerment, quality, and positively impacting the lives of his community. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. Thank you so much. So today we'll talk a bit about, you know, it's on your t-shirt fitness, but also a bit about, you know, how COVID's affected gyms around the world, including, you know, Canada, a bit about your experience as a TCK. You know, we've had a lot of TCKs, you know, third culture kids, but you're sort of a TCK on steroids, as I would put it, right? <laughs> Tanzania, Costa Rica, Brazil, Japan, and also, you know, the very exotic North Carolina. And... Um, <laughs> Let's start, you know, way back sort of to your younger days. As I was mentioning a second ago, you were in a variety of places, whether it's, you know, Africa, South America, Asia. So, you know, how did these experiences as a TCK in a variety of locations sort of make the person you are today? Wow, we could talk for an hour about that, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been it's it's all I know. First of all, it's it's my identity is kind of wrapped up in being a foreigner, and which is super interesting and kind of lend itself to various decisions that I've made onwards. But when I was younger, um, I, the first move that I vividly remember was probably the one from North Carolina to Brazil, and and I, at the time was super upset about it. It was <laughs> we showed up in Sao Paulo and and we we're like crying about how busy and polluted and like how we didn't want to live there and of course fast forward three years later when we're moving from 
Brazil to Costa Rica, we were you know, crying about not wanting to leave the place because <laughs> um, we loved it so much. So, and, and that kind of repeated. And then eventually I, I remember from moving to Costa Rica to Japan, that one being more of, uh, I, I kind of accepted it and I knew that it was coming for a while. Um, I think my dad got the job almost a year before we actually moved. And so we, we knew pretty early on. And so we had a lot of time to prepare for that. And I remember actually touching base with classmates in or future classmates at the time in, in Japan and uh, at ASIJ on MSN Messenger and um, talking about like just like what it was like. And so got a real feel for it. But it, it definitely felt like I kind of always had two feet into where I was headed rather than where I currently was. It was, it was always somebody was leaving my world or I was leaving theirs um, because the communities that we live in were super transient. And you know, not only was it myself who was moving around, but other people in those communities that were moving around a lot too. Um, ASAJ was a bit of a more of an anomaly where people actually stuck around for a lot longer. Um, mm. But the other places that we had lived, it was a lot of people, a lot of families that were there for two, three years and they'd be bouncing out to somewhere else. So I was very used to not, not only me leaving, but friends leaving as well, which was hard. I mean, I, it, I, I, it wasn't until, cause I've been in, I've been in Vancouver now for, I mean, almost, I guess 11, 12 years or something like that. And it's, it's, it's weird because I have relationships and friendships that, you know, I've had more or less since the beginning of being here and which are some of the longest I've had in my life. Like, yeah, we held on to some, I held on to some along the way of, living overseas, but it was just way more challenging to do so than to actually just be in one place. So forming relationships was definitely something that uh, became uh, just a bit of a novelty, I think, in, in being in one place for a lot longer. Do you, uh, you, you mentioned something very interesting about being a foreigner wherever you are. And, you know, off air, we, we spoke a bit about, you know, your, your parents are from the United States. You're also an American citizen. Um, but is that partly, um, you know, you chose UBC as you know your choice college i was very interested in that decision myself because you know your your background is fully american slash you know tanzania japan so canada was totally not on the list so what led you towards that decision and was that part of kind of why you, you that you have sort of this dna in you of wanting to sort of go beyond you know what would be considered you know quote unquote domestic yeah, I mean, I, there's definitely an element of that. And I, I remember being at ASIJ, having this kind of label as an American, but I didn't feel like one. Um, I hadn't lived in the States since I was like six years old or something. And, but there's a lot of people there who considered the U.S. to be home. And, people, and, it's, and I found this a really interesting thing that ASIJ did on sports teams. It would, they would put your name, your number, and your hometown and for a lot of people that was Tokyo or they said it was, but then people were putting towns in the U S and things like that. I was always really confused as to what to put on that sheet. <laughs> and so I found that a lot of people at the school were still rooted in the U S and I didn't feel that way at all. So I felt like, you know, foreign again, even though I like had this identity as an American, at the American School of Japan, where there are other Americans who are referring to their hometowns, and I'm just like, okay, I don't, I don't feel, with, I don't feel with that, and I don't, I don't feel with Japanese quite either. So yeah, when it when it came to choosing a university, I absolutely was not interested in going to the states, partly because I felt like, I mean, Bush was president at the time. I wasn't really, I don't know, I wasn't, I wasn't vibing with what the U.S. was putting out on an international 
level. So I started looking uh, in Canada. Um, I applied to schools in Montreal, but mostly in BC is, is where I applied. And how I got acquainted with the area was more, uh, was through, um, through some friends, uh, through a friend in particular that I met through, uh, through the Thorntons um, working at summer day camp. And, and so we, we connected and then she kind of opened my eyes to the sort of Vancouver, lower BC area. I went and visited it once and I was just like, okay, yeah, <laughs> this is great. Let's do this. And I fell in love with the city. Yeah, exactly. Plus I had no idea what I wanted to do in university and then the, the idea of kinesiology um, and sports, that being kind of a career path that resonated with me in a big way too. So. UBC kind of had had the best of both worlds. And was that interest like in you know just athletics and fitness, all that? Was that something pretty deep rooted from your times in high school? Yeah, and and earlier, I, I think I was you know for as long as I can remember, I've been involved in sports, and and that took shape. And this is another interesting thing about the moving around a lot is every school that we lived in had different sports available. So in elementary school and. I was playing soccer and then eventually I started playing, I played volleyball because I couldn't play basketball yet. Like that hadn't started, that didn't start until grade seven or something. I played basketball for a while and plus some other things. Then I moved to ASIJ and then there was football. So I was like, okay, let's, and I'm super stoked to start with, uh, with that. And so I played football at ASIJ for four years and baseball as well which I couldn't play either of those sports in any school that I had been in before that. So it was, it kind of morphed my, my athletic career <laughs> changed with every, with every move. And then yeah. eventually I just kind of felt like, okay, if there's an opportunity to pursue this as a career. And at the time of ASIJ, actually, I spent a ton of time in the athletic trainer's room, um, partly because I was injured sometimes a lot of the time. Um, but also because I just really loved learning about it. That, that's funny you mentioned, you know, being injured. Cause that, does, that does seem to be a common thread with um, athletic trainers, like, you know, at various levels. They see, a lot of them, you know, have gone through injuries themselves. Um, I don't know if you've ever read, read the book by, uh, was it Paul Lake? I think uh, he played for City, Manchester City. And yeah, yeah. he basically wore his ACL like 20 times. It's something absurd. It's not, like, I've heard of five, six, but something like 20 times. And this was before... Uh, the technology today, like in the 80s and 90s. So he basically, his career was ended like at 21, 22. But now he's a full-time, you know, trainer. So I know personally as uh, someone who's also torn both ACLs, I find his story very uh, inspiring. Because I, I remember I was in there for myself, but then I learned to kind of tape up my own injuries and things like that. So I would just kind of visit and grab the things I needed and then do it myself half the time. And then I wanted to learn about it. So I was kind of spending extra time in there, you know, observing and, and watching how injuries were assessed and treated and, and dealt with and taped. And so eventually sometimes I was taping up my classmates and, uh, and putting ice packs on them. <laughs> it was fun. So, so this sort of like love towards, you know, fitness and especially sort of that recovery, you know, seemed to be embedded from a very early age. What I'm curious is, you know, a lot of people have gone on in regards to athletics to pursue a career like in teaching, like physical education, which you did do a year at, at Atlanta. So mm-hmm. at what point did you sort of feel like, you know, working at the fitness gym, what was the route you wanted to take as opposed to, let's say, teaching PE? 
Yeah. That, um, so that year in Atlanta was awesome because it was, uh, it was a mishmash of so many different jobs. Normally they have a couple interns helping with, uh, with athletics, some with, uh, with assistant PE teaching. And in my case, they just decided to bring me on full-time rather than part-time and give me just this kind of well-rounded <laughs> situation where I was, I was doing assistant PE teaching, so, which was actually in Spanish, which was kind of cool. Um, it was a fully bilingual school, and there were different streams. But because I spoke Spanish, I, uh, I was actually an assistant PE teacher to the teacher who was teaching PE in Spanish, <laughs> um, which was awesome. So did that. I was also coaching some of the middle school sports, um, which was in English. I was working with the athletics department and putting on varsity games and you know, running the clock and various other things. And uh, what else? Oh, and at the time I was also working with a, um, a CrossFit coach who was the husband of one of our other PE teachers. We became friends and I was training in CrossFit myself and also shadowed and helped teach, helped coach some of the classes that he was running. And so I got a ton of exposure to different sort of career options in that one year. It was like, the, option, the, the PE option, the coaching option, the adult coaching option through CrossFit, um, plus a little bit of the athletic training and injury stuff that um, they had a trainer at the school and I kind of worked with him occasionally too. So um, from there, I kind of was pulled a little bit more towards the, the, the fitness side and adults are fun to train and teach because you can level with them like humans who, I mean, in a different way, you can call them out on crap and swear at them sometimes if it's appropriate. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so I found that, I don't know, I found it really fun. And I also wanted to explore a little bit more on the, the injury and rehab side of it as well, which I then ended up doing a little bit more. That's intriguing. So you've, you've had your, you know, you've tried these variety of athletics related occupations and you know, you're where, where you're at today. And how long have you been at Innovative Fitness for? So I started as a coach in 2012. So there, and that was about six years at our Kitsilano location, which is another part of Vancouver. And uh, then owned my own for three years now, or maybe just a little bit over three, three and a half. Technically, technically we've been in our space for three years, but we, were, we started training people a little bit before that. When you train adults, um, you know, you mentioned there's that sort of difference between, you know, be a bit more straight with them in comparison to maybe teaching children. And, you know, what I was wondering was what is more challenging for like a fitness coach to get someone who's like very athletic and very fit and very demanding, you know, who wants to, you know, someone who's maybe like an amateur, you know, the highest level within like an amateur level or uh, basically getting someone who is, you know, has never been to a gym in their life. Um, they're not motivated, but like, at least they're showing up. So like, have you seen those extremes and, you know, how have you, dealt with it differently there it's interesting they're totally different challenges you have the person who is new to fitness and doesn't have it built into their lifestyle um, the biggest challenge is working it into their life because really you know if you think about them and what they currently are doing they're they've filled their schedule like everybody's everybody who's of the age ish that our clients are which is usually between say 35 and 55 they've got jobs they've got kids they've got mortgages they've got they've got stuff going on so 
now we're trying to insert this new behavior, which is ultimately going to, you know, hopefully impact them positively. Um, but that's a real challenge for them on adjusting their entire routine and lifestyle and, you know, way of being around this new thing that we're then incorporating called fitness, um, which comes with recovery, which comes with sleep, which comes with hydration, comes with like nutrition. There's so many other things to it than just showing up to the gym for an hour. And then you have the athlete who already has it built in, knows exactly, you know, what their body responds well to, what it doesn't. They're this fine tuned machine that has probably had injuries, has probably had issues, has probably like trained well and trained poorly. And, you know, so depending on where you're catching them in that cycle, the, you know, you're not really trying to create new behaviors per se. You're just tweaking what they're already doing. And now when it comes to results, though, you take this person who's unfit, untrained, doesn't have anything, you give them a couple hours a week of exercise, it's going to change their life. Mm -hmm. Whereas you take this person who's a seasoned athlete, you have to be extremely specific and create the right stimulus to affect the kind of change that you want to see in that person in order to achieve the result that you want. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's just a totally different game. And I mean, so you, you've been there now for six years. Um, have there been any clients that especially come to your mind when you think of sort of like you've seen just massive change with their training regimen and, you know, yeah, made like, the most impact on you? Totally. I mean, it's every day. And, and the, it usually doesn't show up. As, I mean, you kind of have this stereotypical image of the fitness industry, and this is something that we're actively working as a company to, to counter um, this image of the before and after picture where pretty much anybody who signs up for a, to work with a personal trainer has this idea of this transformation that they're going to embark on, which isn't untrue, but at what point do you say, all right, we're at that after photo now. You can't just, unless you're saying like, okay, we're going to challenge you for 90 days. We're going to see like how much we can get out of you. And then we're going to see what results happen. Yeah, that's a way, that's a tactic. But people, like the research shows that people don't really respond well from a life overhaul. Like that's a temporary solution. That's the keto diet. That's like, that's stuff that doesn't really stick. The, the joke that I kind of always play in my head of the before and after photo is like, okay, where's the actual after photo? Like, <laughs> like where's the now photo? Like this was like what happened in 90 days. What happened in the two years after that? Usually what it took in order to create that change in 90 days is not something sustainable. What we want to create with our clients is something that, that lasts forever. So really those moments of achievement and of accomplishment, of celebration, they happen all the time. But then you also have just as many days where you feel like you're not getting anywhere. And those have to happen. Like those, those slip ups have to happen. So it's, um, and, and then, you know, you pick yourself up, you work on them and you keep going. But it, it can come from little things like, oh, I can do 12 push-ups this week when last week I could only do 10. Or it could be like, you know, oh, my God, my knees don't hurt when I'm walking down this hike that I do all the time. So it's, it's yeah, it's, it's little things like that, that that we experience all over the place. So it seems like you guys are all about changing habits, right? Getting that, as you said, if you're, you know, you got mortgages, you got jobs to go to, you know, how do you sort of put into, you know, this already for many people, busy schedule, workout routine. And I think it's sort of a good segue into what we spoke about off air a bit 
uh, you had that book, um, I think it was called the 5am club. And I've definitely seen a few other books too that, you know, talk about, you have to get up early, get up early, work out early. So, you know, what is, is your personal experience sort of around that? And, you know, is, is that sort of the real deal that, that, that early morning workout is a real, the, the best way to work out? It's, it's interesting. Cause, um, as I was saying to you out there, like the, the early morning life was something that I had started to do a long time ago, just out of necessity because we're training clients at 6am. Um, I'm not really training anybody anymore, but I, I still kind of tend to wake up early um, and, and do my own fitness first thing in the morning. I think there's something to be said for having nothing else that's pulling at your attention. You know, if you all normally wake up at seven and then you all of a sudden set your alarm for six, then you've just created an hour of your day where you had, you have zero habits already formed and there's zero demands on that time. You can kind of create whatever you want. So that's kind of the, what I found when I started doing it. And so the 5 a.m. club for me, because I was training people at 6 a.m. actually was the 4 a.m. club. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was literally waking up at 4 a.m. I would wake up, I would go for like a 20 minute run um, just around the neighborhood, no matter how wet or dark or disgusting it was. Come home, journal, or you know, do some kind of quiet reflection. And then after that, I would get my stuff together and, you know, start making some food and not look at my phone. And it was, it was an amazing time of day where, like I said, like nothing else, you have nothing else to do. There's no more emails. Like nobody, like nobody's going to be responding to you anyway or reading what you are sending them. So I think that's, it's, it's an interesting way of forming a new habit because you're not fighting against anything. If you try to create a new habit anywhere else, there's something that usually holds that time. Mm-hmm. And, and so the more research is coming out about habits and, and creating new ones and building new things into your routine, it, it's all about tricking yourself into adopting a behavior that is sort of piggybacks on something you already do. So rather than starting to work out in the afternoon after you're done work, when that was never a thing for you before, it's sometimes easier to just wake up an hour earlier and do it then because you have a routine, you have a ritual of when you're done work. Maybe you don't realize what it is, but you know, people finish work, they get on the bus or they get in their car, they come home, they greet their spouse or they like, they do something. There's something that, that they're going to have to like cut or change in order to insert exercise. So sometimes early mornings is easier. Yeah. That, that's really intriguing. That that's, that seems to be the trend. And as you said, I mean, I don't know about the 4am club. That just seems absurd. <laughs> To me, but uh, <laughs> that seems like the 5 a.m., 6 a.m. club. I think definitely a lot of people could uh, could sign up for that. And um, you know, you mentioned a few times now um, things about recovery as well as nutri- nutrition. So you know, I think this you know whole area of just athletics expanded right a lot more in comparison to 20 years ago when you know you had these gym rats essentially you know who would just pump iron, and now it's a lot more you know. Um, I, since I'm talking, probably the viewer couldn't see it, but you were just drinking water right now. And we were just talking off air about water too. Uh, what would you say, um, you know, whether they are a former athlete or just, you know, someone who's start try, trying to get into better habits eating wise, what are some of the first things you tell your clients to, you know, that they, they can change right away? I mean, water's a great one actually. Um, and that's, it's something that has huge benefits when, when you're drinking, I'm, I'm honestly, 
the worst at water. <laughs> I um, especially I think and, and here's here's an interesting thing about habits as well. Something as simple as wearing a mask, as so many of us are doing now. I haven't I don't know where the study is. I don't know if there actually is, is one, but I bet you anything people are drinking less water now. Just because mm-hmm. you have to pull a mask down in order to do it. And then maybe you have to think about washing your hands afterwards or something. Like so and that's and that's honestly been enough friction for me to drink less water. And I've just noticed it lately. So, but yeah, it is definitely one of the easier things to to implement right away. That and sleep. Like if you can get somebody to add an hour of sleep, it it you know the benefits are massive. That's that's when recovery happens. That's when you you know switch off. That you can't be stressed in while you're sleeping. Um, and stress is the, the biggest killer when it comes to results or you know being prone to injury or anything like that your your cortisol levels when they're super high it creates tension and inflammation in the body and you almost the worst thing you can do is go and have a super hard workout when you're in that state um but we we kind of fight against that with our clients a lot because they tend to be fairly high stress high uh you know high result people um, for the most part. And so there's definitely some re-education that has to happen when, when we bring someone on. But with, with people when they're starting off, the lowest hanging fruit changes depending on the goals. Um, if it's somebody who's you know, more interested in, in being in less pain because of injury, then you know, perhaps adding in things like movement are gonna do more benefit than you know, focusing on the water or focusing on the, you know, the sleep will still be actually super, super important. But, we we tend to we tend to not overload people at the beginning. We try to we try to play it in step by step. That's interesting about yeah the overwork. I mean, are you familiar with apps like Strava? Right. I know. I think I've seen you on Strava. And I um you know as someone who's I'm reasonably active. Um, at least I, I used to run more. Um, as you might you might remember. Um, and I see people uh you know older than me post you know oh, we just went on a run, you know twelve k, fifteen k. And I, when I go running, my body just, you know, kind of shuts down at six, seven K. But then there's part of me now that wonders, you know, if I begin to run 10, 15 K, is that going to have adverse effects and actually start hurting my body? Or is it myself not pushing myself enough? So how, especially, you know, guys our age, or as we enter our thirties, forties, maybe we're not quite where we were athletically at 20. How do we sort of balance that? Cause there's part of me that wants to be kind you know, to myself, but then there's part of me that's thinking like, you're slowly, you know, just kind of. Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, And I mean, depending on how fast you're running six or seven K, like it might be 30 minutes, it might be, you know, 40, it it depends on what that is for you. But, um, and then how much you warming up beforehand, how much you cooling down after, like, are you literally just putting on your shoes running six K and then you're in the shower? Um, Because all that plays into what that, the effect of that run is for you for one person that distance doesn't mean the same as somebody else's you know 12k your your 7k might be like super well warmed up well run you know well cooled down it really takes you like you know an hour an hour plus all in and that other person who's running 12 is just blasting it and and they're taking the same amount of time to do theirs the training effect is totally different but the question that you have is is around kind of like it's when to push and when to when to yeah. kind of take it easy and one thing that we tell our people a lot is is consider everything you've done 
in that day or in that week and and then make a decision because like and, and be real with yourself because if you've been working like crazy you know maybe for you it's the end of year you've got a lot of wrap up school stuff to do and it's you know it's high stress it's like deadlines there's a lot going on like that's not the time to push yourself from 7 to 12k it, pick pick the holidays like <laughs> take take time outside of that and, and and ramp it up like little by little don't just do it overnight um because if you double your volume overnight regardless of the training benefit you want to progress things into it for sure and um mentioned it earlier abs are made in the kitchen what does that mean and what is that is that a fitness term that like people in the fitness world take seriously or is it just sort of like an urban legend or myth or whatever you want to call it uh, this, is, this is one of those like fitness industry things that i hate so much um and it's not because it's untrue it's it's because it places so much more emphasis on the aesthetic than than on the function or the intention and and i mean okay so say say somebody really wants to uh have a six pack there's really only one thing that creates a six pack and that is losing fat like everybody has abdominal muscles like you'd be bending over backwards and breaking your spine if you didn't everyone's seen like a you know five-year-old kid who's just ripped and they've got a six but like it's just it doesn't mean you're necessarily strong it doesn't mean anything per se but the abs are made a kitchen thing is is just like you're not going to get abs by doing a bunch of ab work you will but what people are talking about when they're saying things like that is is having the leanness to see the actual muscles themselves um i would way rather somebody have a strong core than have a six-pack not necessarily the same thing when you talk about abs being in the kitchen is to talk about losing fat losing weight is is what they're talking about so you're not a big fan of the term you think it's kind of deceptive i think that the fitness industry overall has it, and, and, and I say fitness industry, but really it's become this weight loss industry. Mm -hmm. The amount of money, the amount of fad diets, the amount of BS that has been marketed to people, sold to people on the basis of this is the ideal image that everybody should be pushing towards. And this is why, because, and people who come to us, they're feeling inadequate about themselves, self-conscious, and they think that losing 10 pounds is going to fix that. And it's really sad and that's one of the things and i think you know that line um it just it just feeds into that world to me and what we really want to have people accomplish is a sense of empowerment like people we want to leave people feeling like they can take something on feel really good about the results that they achieve and then go on to take on bigger and better and more challenging things and that they they have the ability they have the efficacy to do that really like i i love it when we get somebody and this is, sounds counterintuitive but i love it when we have a client who comes to us and says like hey you know what i think i'm going to give it a go on my own for a while now you know sometimes it really works sometimes they're missing the accountability and the scheduledness of that of that session but they feel like they can so that's awesome i, I don't want people to feel like they need to train with us in order to feel adequate or to feel like they're you know worthy or whatever so we, what we want to give people is that is that sense of empowerment rather than that that symptom fix that they feel like they're going to achieve by losing that 10 pounds. That's a great point. Yeah, I didn't really think about how the diet industry 
sort of has hacked into in a sense is the fitness industry with you know these various products and catch lines and ideas and you know you're mentioning empowerment and i i know you've you've um talked about this a bit maybe like on your instagram at some points but you know what as like a leader right now you know of your your gym right you have I think 12 12 staff on you and uh, hundreds of uh clients 120 i think 120 clients how do you sort of lead and where where do you get your examples from um all over the place honestly like I was really lucky to have found this company. Like I, I, the, the people who were, the people who founded it did so on the basis of, of, of empowering people and of, and of really giving people ownership over their own life, over their own fitness. And, and what we've, what we do and how we do it is through taking people outside of their comfort zones. Um, not just in the gym, but we actually literally lead people around the world and do adventures and take people to different destinations to run races or climb mountains or achieve things that they didn't, that these bucket list items that they're like, oh yeah, one day I'll do Kilimanjaro. It's like, okay, so like next year, um, let's train for that. <laughs> so like that's that's what we created, that, that, that's what this company is created on is um, is on, on the basis of empowerment through experience, through challenge, through adversity. You know, that, that was definitely an inspiration of mine. The other ones, and I accumulate new ones every week, I swear, is, is different, different people to follow, different schools of thought to, to listen to. But the authoritarian leadership, of which I think is honestly something of the past, it, I, I, would, I would honestly credit my dad and both my parents, really, with, uh, with some of this. Um, that it was always kind of like a choose your path kind of attitude. Um, and if given choices and feel like, and that feeling that you're a part of the process, you, you become way more bought in to that process. And so when I'm talking about leading my team or us leading clients, we don't want to just say like, this is where we're going, follow. We want to say, look, Here's what I see. Here's what I see is possible, but it's your choice. And here's where we want to get to. Like, here's where you said you want to go. Um, and, but these are different ways that we can get there. So, like, let's talk about what's going to work for you and what's going to work for us and, and what's going to motivate you. So it, it takes more time, <laughs> but, but the results are way better. And you get a whole team of people, you know, like this, like this team who – literally carried this business through a pandemic bought in and, and treating it like it's theirs. Mm, that's a great so point. That is, you need, yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it reminds me of uh, like sports teams. Huh? It's just basically you need to lead with that, you know, mentality of having high achieve, you know, trying to achieve high goals, but at the same time, if the players don't buy in, it's like, that's it. Um, as the saying goes in sports, right? You lose a locker room. And I guess that very much relates to like, you know, leading a group of people in a company and uh you just mentioned covid crazy time uh, to be uh you know involved in the fitness so how has that ride been for you guys this, i guess what last nine months or so yeah um so pandemic in in our on our end in uh, on the west coast in canada really hit i mean it kind of did all of them with all of us in mid-march and um, so we were, I was in Palm Springs actually um, with my wife and her, her parents. 
And um, while we while I was there, all of a sudden things were getting kind of crazy and weird. You know, I was talking to my team over here. They were, we were having a quarter hand sanitizer and various other things. No one knew what the heck was going on. Um, but, uh, and then all of a sudden as, uh, we got on some emergency, emergency calls with all the other franchise owners and, and our corporate head office and made the decision on, um, on March 15th to close all of our locations. And there was no mandate to do so at the time. Um, we just thought it was the right thing to do. We didn't think it was going to be, you know, this big of a thing. We thought we were like, okay, we'll close for two weeks. We'll help flatten this curve. Then we'll you know, hopefully be back open. Um, we were closed for two months and so from, yeah, or no, two and a, two and a half, we reopened June 1st, but like the, the first thing that happens is we, we created like, okay, what's, what is our action plan here? And after deliberating a lot, what we ended up doing is pivoting fully over to a virtual training model. Um, and we didn't just, you know, grab zoom and say, okay, train your people to zoom. Um, we actually built our own platform called I have called it I have direct uh, where we could service our clients and then we created all these little fun updates um, on the platform to that we could use to train people um, so little things like we can capture an image like draw lines on it and you know hey look this is how you're squatting like check this and um, so we built that in uh, like a couple weeks it was insane and then we managed in that time to train our entire teams on how to train people virtually. And that not only came with how to do it, but how to set up your space and everything. So we had everybody set up their own home studios and contacted all of our clients to say like, Hey, who wants to keep going? Um, we ended up getting about a 30% uh, uptick on, on that. And you know, the rest were either unable or, you know, it wasn't for them and that's fine. So then when we reopened in June, of course, everything changed. We had lines taped off on the ground for each individual training session. We created these pods around the studio and all of the training sessions were being done in those pods. So like you'd be with your coach, the coach is wearing a face shield. Um, now as things have progressed a little bit more, now coaches wearing masks, clients are wearing masks everywhere except for their pod. Like once they're right inside there, they're allowed to take it off if they want to. Um, some people keep it on still, but it's been, it's been nuts. Like, it, <laughs> like I keep checking myself because it's just like, every, there's something new all the time. There's new government grants that come out, which are really helpful, but we need to stay on top of those. There's equipment or supplies that we need to order. Cleaning had to be ramped up. It was pretty insane. Yeah, that sounds like quite the ride. There's like two and a half months closed. And that's, that's good to hear, though, about the, the grants. I know, um, uh, but that, that's good to hear that it seems like the Canadian government has, uh, has uh, I don't want to get too political on this podcast, but, you know, they've definitely done a better job than the $600 that's about to come to the uh, <laughs> hands of Americans in 2021. Yeah, no, I... <laughs> I'm grateful to be in Canada. It's for on a business level, on a personal level. Um, yeah, I know the, the government support's been absolutely amazing for, for my business. I, I know some others, you know, have slipped through the cracks in some ways. It's not perfect. Obviously it's never going to be perfect, but, um, we've benefited tremendously from, from that. And it's, it's really saved us in a huge way. So like, we're not only 
like we're not actually in a deficit anymore at all. And so we're, we're running a viable business now. Um, and we're at pre pandemic numbers and have been for the past like three, three or four months or so. That's really encouraging to hear. And um, I imagine these online apps too, and maybe I'm, I'm being too optimistic, but you know, there's companies like Twitter, Facebook now that, you know, allow remote, not remote learning, remote, what do they call it? Remote, um, um, working. That's it. Sorry. It's such a simple term. Oh, yeah. You know, and you know, there's all these things. So I was just thinking like, you know, maybe even with the apps you guys made now, that's going to be around forever. And, you know, even this, mm-hmm. even this podcast too, like, I mean, it's sort of a product of the COVID and, um, I mean, I, I still plan on continuing it, you know, a year, two years, three years from now. So it's, it's been interesting to see some things have sort of laid its seeds and, you know, might continue on in this post, you know, pandemic world. I was, what I was just going to say is I think it's just created this new opening for people to explore different types of doing things, different ways of doing things, you know, whether it's working from home, whether it's training, you know, with your personal trainer from home, but the trainer's on the computer, you know, people are just willing to give it a go. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's kind of one of the biggest things that has impacted us is like, if you had come out with a product like this pre pandemic, people would be like, I'm not doing that. Like, seems dumb. I'd rather go into the gym because there's no reason why you couldn't. And, uh, and now like it's, people have tried it. People like it. We've refined it. And, and then when, say we're getting back to people going on business trips, for instance, like they don't have to miss the two weeks of training that they're, you know, spending over in Toronto or New York. Um, they can, we can still keep it going. So it's going to be great for that. It's like that meme, you know, where this meeting could have been an email. I just feel like it's that like at a much higher level now. It's kind of like, well, you don't need to fly to, you know, Albuquerque or whatever, like for this meeting, you can just do it online for an hour and you you save the flight, you save the hotel. You know, there's definitely I mean, I I hope that turns out well for us because, you know, like I said, like the type of clients that we have, they're, you know, they're, they're usually high level execs or people who tend to be, you know, flying around all over the place, it seems. And I feel like that's going to happen a lot less now. Yeah, I, I agree. That seems to be the trend. And um, earlier you were talking about, you know, at ASIJ, um, I remember this too. You'd have your name, I think it was your grade, and hometown. And then, you know, as, as you said, it's always very interesting because, you know, for some people it was clear cut, like, I'm born and bred in Tokyo, but for a lot of kids, you know, they've, they've lived in a variety of places. So my final question for you, Ben, is now, you know, um, at age um, 30, sorry, did I get, did I get that right? I'll add. Oh, dude, I thought I, I thought I was 32 and you were 30. I just realized I'm 34. I forgot my own age. <laughs> <laughs> so, sorry about that, dude. <laughs> I don't know that part <laughs> i might sometimes i just keep stuff in but um i'll, I'll rephrase <laughs> it so um now you know at age 32 if you were to sort of have to put down your football you know roster you know ben Carr grade whatever you'd be grade 25 or something now what would you uh put down as uh, your hometown today ah, that's a really great question i mean i've lived here longer than i've lived anywhere but the rest of where I've lived and where I've grown up is such a 
is such a part of me that I I don't know if I could put down anything. Like I I think you know, I, I put down something like ask me later. <laughs> <laughs> meet me by the bar and i'll tell you <laughs> like i don't know it's um but yeah I, I, the closest thing to it would be vancouver for sure yeah it's it's such a complicated thing for me i, I find it inspiring because you know i teach internationally too and i think a lot of people don't know right there's a lot of people even you know a lot of kids who are half japanese like myself you know right now we're in our 30s so some of them have spent about half their life in the u.s half in tokyo but in your case, I think your example sort of illustrates that one could go to a city that they have no connection with, you know, fall in love with someone too, and marry and, you know, pursue a job and essentially make a new home. So I, I find that very sort of, um, hopefully the direction, you know, the entire world is going in, in the 21st century. There's a lot less of this sort of nativism where, you know, you're like, you're from yeah. somewhere. No, that's, that's. I understand being a part of a community like that. I understand, but why does that? I don't understand why it has to be tied to a place, or mm. like. I mean, I feel like often and historically, maybe it has been, but I mean, there have been nomadic people for ever, <laughs> and and their their identity is not in where they are; it's in who they're with, and mm. and I feel like over the years I've collected people, and you know, there's. Uh, it was my birthday actually last week. And so I'm communicating with a whole lot of them. And um, so, and these, and there are people in every part of the world that you can imagine that I'm, you know, having a quick little chat with. And it's, I, yeah, that's, that's kind of my cheesy hometown, I guess you could say is, is the, the connections that I have. Well put. Yeah. So it's not a location, but a community. And um, as we conclude, I like to ask the guests at the end, what is to come in the next few years, next few decades? So, uh, yeah, the mic is yours. Well, I'm trying not to plan too much more than about a month in <laughs> away um, on on the business front, at least. Um, so, yeah, we're we're coming into the new year. We're very optimistic about how things are going. Um, personal training seems to be less effective than something like group classes, which are currently closed. Um, in BC, but um, yeah, so we, we've got we've got high hopes for what's going to turn out in the new year. We hired a couple of new coaches recently, and um, and the team is is on fire. So we're really excited to see what happens when people really get get moving. Um, on on the home front, we we got a dog. We got a pandemic dog, <laughs> and <laughs> uh, and she's uh, she's just been spayed, and she's absolutely insane at the moment she's something about her age and hormonal levels but i'm really looking forward to that chilling out so we can go on some snowshoe hikes and um and whatever else and get outdoors with her again because uh she needs it really badly um my wife laura she's uh, she's a nurse she's doing contact tracing actually for covid and she um so looking forward to her actually injecting people with the vaccine hopefully at some point fairly soon um and and this thing turning a corner beyond that uh into the next year i'm i'm actually talking with my brother um about doing a a couple's trip where i, I i'm gonna he doesn't know this actually yet but uh, i'm i'm going to push to have us book something um in late summer or early fall next year 
optimistically. Everything's cancelable right now, anyway. Um, so that we can all go and just hang out on a beach and uh, and chill out for a bit, hug. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a great plan, man. And I hope uh, things transpire, and it looks like it will. Hopefully, with you know nurses like your wife injecting those vaccines. Um, you, know, you might as well call this podcast like a COVID series because I feel like every <laughs> you just go each season, like you see it progressively getting better. So I, I you know, I see it by you know maybe season seven or eight. Uh, nothing uh, truly, just looking back on it at, at the past. Um, but yeah, that, thanks for joining us today on uh, episode fifty-four, um, Tokyo Alumni Podcast. And um, yeah, thank you, Ben. Yeah, thank you so much. This is really cool. Thank you.